0: Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Sometimes I do a special Mother's Day sermon and sometimes I don't. Not one that thinks that it's wrong to do a Mother's Day sermon, but if God doesn't put one on my heart, I just stay in the next text up. And that's kind of where we find ourselves today. We're coming out of Peter's great confession... Who do you say that I am? Well, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus recognizes that, honors that response and says, Blessed are you, Simon bar for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but our Father who is in heaven. And thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. This certainty of a coming building of the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. We will go forward and we will make uh, make progress taking the gospel to the ends of the earth that there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nations represented transforming the world by the power of the gospel. And he would give the church and Peter as a representative there the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever that they would bind on earth would be what was bound in heaven. The Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, they had tried to bind people's conscience according to a false standard, binding where they should have been loosed and loosing where they should have been bound. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, the church would form culture and they would bring people in who should be brought in and tell them how to live and they would get it right. And then they would keep a pure church and a pure church cannot be stopped. I tell you, an impure church can be and will be. But a pure church cannot be stopped. But they expected this to happen in a minute, didn't they? They thought this is going to start happening right now. But this is a future hope after the resurrection. But the disciples aren't prepared for that, are they? They're thinking we're going to start going forward right now. But they don't understand that Jesus has to go the path of the cross first. So we got that unexpected follow-up that we began last week where that the next thing after this, the right after he tells them that the church is going to be built, the kingdom is going to go forth, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it, that they've got the keys to the kingdom of heaven, that wonderful encouraging message, he tells them, he commands privacy. He sternly warned them that they shouldn't tell anyone that he was the Christ. You'd think he'd be wanting to get people on his team, but Jesus didn't need people on his team because he had a work he had to do before he could ascend to the throne, didn't he? He didn't want them to go out and form a coup and get everybody on their team. He was going to go the path of the cross. There was a priesthood coming that they couldn't understand. That from that time on, verse 21, Matthew 16:21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, rise again, that Jesus had to first become the great high priest. They thought he would be the king and then be given access to the temple and be the king, on the the priest on his throne. But they didn't realize that he would be the great high priest who would offer himself as a sacrifice, that he would abolish the need for a temple, that he would raise himself up as the temple, that he himself would be the sacrificial lamb, that all that had to happen first. They couldn't understand that. That was unexpected to them. They didn't get it. That he had to first fulfill this priestly ministry that God would raise him up after that because he was sinless. That he would be declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And then after that, they would go forth and through him we would receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith amongst the Gentiles. First he had to die before he became the king so that we could take this message to the ends of the earth by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was good that he went away because if he went away he would send us the Spirit and that we by the Spirit he would put strength in every stride and we could go forth and take those, those gates of hell. So those were two unexpected things. privacy commanded and priesthood coming. We're picking up and we're going to see three more unexpected things they couldn't have seen coming in verses 16. I mean verses 22 through 28. What do we see? Well Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, "God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you." But he turned and said to Peter, "Get behind me, Satan." You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind, not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and forfeits his soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. We're going to see three more unexpected things here. We're going to see Peter corrected... We're going to see a profitable cross. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? And we're going to see a prophesied coming. That's unexpected for these disciples. But let's begin with Peter being corrected. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. We touched this point last week, but let's look at it more closely this morning. After Jesus shows the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. What's that word? He must Go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Peter is understandably troubled, isn't he, by that? In some sense, the heart behind Peter's actions and words doesn't only seem honorable but loving and compassionate, doesn't it? Compassionate. He didn't want to see his Lord and his friend die. He didn't want to see him suffering. He couldn't bear the idea of Jesus' suffering. Doesn't the thought of Jesus' suffering and death turn your stomach when you look back on it? Who remembers a few weeks ago when I went through the great details of what happened on the cross and what Jesus experienced for us? Do you remember how it just turned your stomach, how you hurt? Peter had seen crucifixions. Peter had seen scourgings. Peter knew what suffering really looked like in a way that we can't even comprehend. Him looking forward to it affected him more than us looking back on it, I'll guarantee it. How much more would it have broken Peter's heart looking forward to this coming crucifixion of this man who he loved so dearly? So Peter took him aside and, and we got to commend him for that. It's much more, he could have been much more tactful. He didn't call him out in front of the other disciples, but he did call him out, didn't he? And it says that he began to rebuke him. This word for rebuke here is to warn or sternly admonish. Admonish. So Jesus had sternly admonished the disciples to tell no one he was the Christ. And now Peter sternly warns Jesus. Guys, anytime you're sternly warning Jesus about something, you're getting something wrong. Aren't you? This word carries the idea of an authoritative judgment normally used by an official or a leader against someone under his jurisdiction. Peter is talking down to Jesus, correcting him as if he's a higher authority than Jesus is. You ever get that way when you don't agree with what the Word of God says, what it demands of you, what it calls you to, or what's going on in your life where you think you're going to tell God how it ought to be? You're going to think you're going to tell Christ how it ought to be? we got to be able to relate to this. That's exactly what we've got Peter doing right here. The present infinitive, infinitive form of this verb here, it suggests that Peter made this rebuke repeatedly. He is pleading with him. He's going on and on correcting. Now, Jesus, that's not how it's going to be. It can't be like that. Peter was, This was typical of Peter's self-confident personality. Confidence can be an asset, but it can also be a liability sometimes, can't it? In our confidence, we can overspeak. We can let our, as I like to say, let your alligator mouth overrun your canary brain. And we've got Peter doing right, that right here. His deep love for Jesus and dependence on Jesus made the thought of Jesus dying a terrifying prospect. So we could say that both love in his heart for Jesus and fear of, no, no, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand that. I don't understand what you're saying has to happen, God. I don't understand. This doesn't work for me in my, ma- in my mind. And it led to this response of him trying to become the authority over who we know as God incarnate himself in flesh. Either way, though, his sinful pride led him to place his own understanding above Christ's. And God forbid it. God forbid it. I love the, the oxymoron of this. God forbid it, Lord. <laughs> God forbid it. Absolutely not, Lord. It means something like, may God in his mercy spare you from this, that this shall never happen to you. It conveys the idea of that the suffering wasn't just undesirable but it's unthinkable. It, 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 Peter's thinking, well, Jesus, you are absolutely perfect and sinless. You are so powerful and mighty. You're so compassionate. God would be wrong to let, some, let you go through something like this. Do the righteous sometimes suffer in this fallen world? Absolutely, they do. It doesn't seem right to us in the moment, and it didn't seem right to Peter and Peter is saying, "Jesus, it doesn't seem right to me that you would suffer and what's Jesus' response' Well, first, it's pretty shocking. He says, "Get behind me, Satan Now, Peter, I think you're, I think you're viewing this a little bit wrong. No, <laughs> get behind me, Satan that and why this is absolutely shocking because it wasn't long ago that he just said blessed are you Simon Barjona verses 17 through 19 you're right there in the text look back blessed are you Simon Bar- Barjona for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father is in heaven he tells him upon I say to you you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower I will give you Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth it will be loosed in heaven that's verse 19 here we are In verse 23, and it's get behind me, Satan. How quickly can we go from being perfectly on point and in the right to being satanically wrong? Be mindful. You can have a valiant stand, and you let your guard down for a minute. You start, you stop thinking scripturally, just for a moment, and it's not long. You've went from a high stand, a high point, to a collapse, a catastrophic collapse. From you are the rock upon which I'm building the church. I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. To so you are, you're like Satan. Why did Jesus come at Peter with so much condemning language here? Well, Jesus had heard this before. Turn with me to Matthew 4, just a few pages back. Matthew 4, 8 through 10. And in the wilderness temptation... Do you remember the third temptation? First is command these stones to be made bread. Second is cast yourself down from the height of the temple. And then the third temptation, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He offers him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these things I will give to you and all you've got to do, Jesus, is fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him... Get behind me, Satan. Go, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. The temptation here was to get the glory without the rejection. The path of the, to get the kingdom without the suffering priesthood. To get the crown without the cross. That's exactly what Satan had offered Jesus. You don't have to go the path of the cross... The the Father doesn't have to exalt you to his right hand because you perfectly kept the law, even to the point of dying for the sins of all your people. Greater love has no man than this, and a man lays down his life for his friends. You don't have to do that, Jesus. You want the kingdom? Here it is. No suffering on a silver platter. I'll give it to you. It's under my authority right now. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Absolutely not. What you're saying is satanic because I don't gain the authority through love and through purchasing these people, through accomplishing the Father's plan. I don't want you to give it to me illegitimately. I'm going to take it through what God has called me to. And he hears the echoes of this in Peter's word. Guys, God has built no pain, no gain into the fabric of creation. You want to get anything worth having, you're going to have to go forward. You're going to have to work at it. And there's going to be hardships and difficulties and sufferings to make it happen, isn't there? Jesus knew the mission given to him by the Father. Jesus knew the cup that the Father had for him to to drink. And in the wilderness temptation, Satan offered him the kingdoms of the world and their glory without Jesus completing the Father's plan. Without him being the lamb that was slain when before the foundation of the world. This was God's plan. Jesus knew that. And even after Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he had resisted that temptation straight from the enemy himself. But Satan wasn't done. In Luke's account of these events, Luke 14, 13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Did you know that after Satan tempts you once and you actually stand, don't get too comfortable because he's going to come back. And sometimes he's going to come through things you might not recognize. In the wilderness he came and he was Satan. Here he comes through Peter, Jesus' loyal disciple, one of Jesus' very good friends. Did you know that sometimes temptation will come through you through people you love and they they will actually encourage you toward things that are wicked and you've got to be on guard? He showed up with the same message through this unlikely source. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. If he's not done, he says, for you are a stumbling block to me. That's the next part. The, the temptation to avoid the cross was a real temptation to Christ because he knew that the cross meant inconceivable agony for him. He knew what the agony would be in taking all of the consequences of the world's sin upon Himself and what a horror that it would be for His Father to hide His face from Him even for a few hours, for Him not to sense His Father's presence, even for a moment to be cut off from the relational unity that He had always shared with the Father. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, when He knows He's about to be betrayed and He knows He's about to go to the cross, He prays, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. If God would remove it, fine. But he's not going to compromise to get it removed. He didn't want it. Satan continued to tempt Jesus throughout his ministry in every way he could. And now he put into Peter's mind the same idea that he tried to put into Jesus' that God's plan was too difficult and too demanding. There has to be an easier way to get the, t- the kingdom. The Father would never allow you to suffer. You're sinless. This God-forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. That's basically what Jesus is saying. My way is better than what you're saying. The same apostle who had just confessed Jesus as the Messiah and as the Son of God now contradicted him. The one who the Father had just inspired to give that, in- that confession was now inspired by Satan himself. From inspired by God to inspired by Satan in a few short verses. Because Peter was now communicating the same temptation as Satan had communicated in the wilderness, he had became a stumbling block to Christ. John MacArthur says it this way. Stumbling block is from the word scandalon, a word originally used of an animal trap, and particularly the part where the bait was placed. This is the bait you're trying to get me to take. The term eventually came to be of luring a person into captivity or destruction. Satan was using Peter to set a trap for Jesus, but Jesus couldn't be trapped. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Why? You are setting your mind on God, not on God's interests, but on man's. Notice that Jesus began to show his disciples. You see that in verse 21. Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. He didn't begin to tell them. He began to what? Show them. How did He show them? He showed them because Jesus knew what the Scriptures said you remember after Jesus had risen from the dead in Luke twenty four forty four through 47 These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Jesus had showed them in the Scriptures... And now Peter argues with Jesus against the Scriptures by his own reason. What I think seems right. There's there's your telltale, guys. Somebody's trying to tell you you're wrong when you're quoting Scripture and showing them what the Scriptures say, and then they say, well, that doesn't seem right to me because blah, 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 blah. You're setting your mind, not on God's thoughts or God's interests, but on man's interest. We now have Peter rebuking Jesus from nothing more than what seems right to him. We've got to be careful arguing from what seems right to us. What do the Scriptures say? The Scriptures reveal the very mind of God. That is the heart of this contrast. How did, how did Peter become like Satan? What made him a stumbling block? That's what it says, right? You have become a stumbling block to me. Why? For you are set not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. God's thoughts and human thoughts neatly summarize the nature of this problem. The way the disciples react to the idea of messianic suffering as defeat shows us that the resurrection on the third day is so overshadowed in their minds by the suffering and death that precedes it that it passes by unnoticed. They're not concentrating on this is the path through suffering to glory. They're just saying absolutely no suffering. (laughs) Guys, how many people today want to compromise? Hey, wouldn't we reach the culture better if we were winsome? I mean, I know the Bible says a lot of stuff and tells us how we should live and tells us what's right and wrong. But I mean, if we just come out hard, they won't listen to our message anymore. I mean, and then they they won't like us and they won't be nice to us and they won't give us seats in their councils or in their jobs or in their businesses. I mean, we can still give the Christian thing, just give them what they can handle, ease into it. And after they like us a whole bunch, then maybe we can put a little bit more on them when they're ready. Guys, that's the very thing that's the temptation for us today, is to escape the reproach of the Word of God by what seems right to us. We're ashamed. If any man is ashamed of me and my words before men, then I will be ashamed of him before the Father. Because I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'll say his name. Yeah, but you won't say anything he taught. I don't want them to know that Jesus is against all the sexual wickedness that's rampant everywhere. I don't, want him to, I, don't want the, I don't want people to think that I'm one of those crazy, Jesus is Lord over all and a religious fanatic and that our laws actually should be based off of what Scripture says. I mean, they'll think I'm crazy then. So we just, we nuance everything. And we kill all of our influence through winsomeness. And we think, oh, we're going to make an impact when they're swallowing us as they use the keys and they bind and loose according to their godless standards. And we sit with our mouth closed saying, oh, you just got to love Jesus undefined. It'll never work. The plan of God was that Jesus would suffer and that his disciples would follow him in the path of suffering. That was the plan of God. It was plan A and there was no plan B. And now he called them to this other unexpected follow-up, a profitable cross. That's oxymoronic, isn't it? Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? There's no way that this would have made any sense to the disciples. Why? Well, they knew that the Scripture said, Cursed is any man who hangs upon a tree. They didn't understand that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged upon a tree, that a necessary path to our forgiveness was by him taking the curse upon himself and then filling us with his spirit that we would go back and follow him through this path of suffering, ending in glory. They didn't have a way to understand that. Their understanding of kings was kings rise up, they have power, they conquer all their, and vanquish all their foes, and then they come into power. That's how they thought it would work. That wasn't God's plan. And it's not God's plan now. We're going to form a coup and go charge Washington or charge Nashville in the midst of all this with our, our bayonets on our, on our side and ready to shoot and ready to go to war and defeat everybody. That's not the way that God's going to do it. It's not the way He's ever done it. He doesn't defeat with swords or muskets. He defeats with a message, with the gospel, standing up. Sure, defending your own self, your own life, your own family, your own community, whoever. If if you're being attacked, you can defend yourself. But we're not going forth to conquer with swords. No, we just stand on the truth. The cross is a necessary element of the gospel but one that they couldn't possibly understand and one which Jesus was telling them that he would experience and one into which he was calling them. Notice the unequivocal call of discipleship. If anyone wishes to come to me, if anyone wants to come to me, if anyone desires to come to me, there's no special arrangement with God. If anyone wants to, here's how it's got to be. You don't make your special arrangement with God. He tells you this is how it is and you either do it that way or you're on the outside looking in. If anyone wishes to come to me, there's no alternative path. He must... He must do what? What is the call? It's a three-fold call here. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let's handle those one at a time. Deny yourself. Well, what does that mean? Well, it certainly doesn't mean to do away with any and all self-interest. That's not what it means. Most every scriptural incentive to obey God is rooted in greater reward, greater blessing, or greater joy, isn't it? Blessed are you. What blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for His sake? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Why? For great is His what His reward in heaven. We want reward. Denying yourself doesn't mean you don't want joy. Well, he tells us to give. Yeah, he tells you it's more blessed to give than to receive. You want the blessing that's greater. When you're denying yourself, it's not that you don't want joy or you don't want reward. You don't want good things. That's not what it's talking about. Even this text tells us to weigh the value of gaining the whole temporal world in comparison with gaining our eternal souls. We want a greater reward. So denying yourself doesn't mean you don't want something good. So what does it mean to deny yourself? To deny means to disassociate oneself from a statement or a person. To decry yourself. That your thoughts are no longer what you lean on. You deny what you think and you return to what God says. The very opposite of what Peter's just done. You've got to deny what you think. What you think doesn't matter. I, I, I had a debate with somebody over scriptures once. Very tense. It was in a church situation. And they, they, uh, I, I, they, were, they had one opinion and I had another. And I, I said, hey, let me get my Bible out. And they said, oh, don't get your Bible out. I said, well, this is going to be a pretty short conversation then. Because I don't care what you think. And I don't care what I think. I care what this book thinks. What this book says. Because it is true. I decry my opinions. And I believe not only in the authority and in the inerrancy of the Word of God, but in its clarity that it is actually you can know what it says and what it teaches and then once you know it, you've got to stand on it. I deny myself and I profess Christ as Lord. You see that in Matthew 10, 22 through 23. It's the, d- the difference between confessing. The, the, the opposite of denying is confessing. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. You've got to deny yourself and confess Christ. My allegiance is to Christ. My opinions are no longer my opinions, only what Scripture teaches. And if my opinions don't line up with what Scripture says, then I'll change my opinions because Jesus is Lord. When we deny ourselves, we deny our own wisdom and we believe God. We lay aside pragmatism. Not this, I think this would work best. So? When did did God tell you to do what you thought would work best? He says, do what I say and I'll take care of the outcome. That's what faith is. God, I believe you and I'm going to do what you say even when it doesn't make sense to me because I've denied myself. We lay aside pragmatism and we do what's right regardless of the consequences. Trusting that God will do right by us. That's the product of saving faith. If that's not who you are, you're not saved. Ooh, It's true. If anyone will come after me, he must do this, right? He must deny himself. That's the first step. I now submit to you. You're, I'm not Lord, you are. That's the first step. When a person will do wrong because it works better for him in the moment, it shows that he hasn't denied himself, doesn't it? It made more sense to Peter that Jesus would not go the path of the cross. Let's get people on our side. Let's go tell everybody you're the cross. We can get all these people that want free food. We can get them on your side. We can get all these people that don't want to pay their taxes. You can promise them tax breaks. You can get all these Pharisees that actually do believe on you and you can tell them, hey, we'll establish a new community. We'll overcome the current uh, synagogue system and I'll give you prominent seats when I come into my kingdom. You think he could have done it that way? Yeah, he could have. It wasn't God's plan. Peter liked that plan better, but it wasn't what God wanted. John 12, 42 through 43. It shows us what people who haven't denied themselves look like. Many, even of the rulers, believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing Him. They knew one thing, but they wouldn't confess Him. They denied Him. Why? For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. They hadn't denied themselves. Pragmatism. If I want to stay in the synagogue, I'm going to have to not confess Jesus because... I want to stay in the synagogue. So even what I believe to be true, I'm going to go against it anyway because my ways that seem right to me are the path to getting what I want. For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. The word is the same word that's used when Peter denied Christ. You remember when he was sitting outside the courtyard in Matthew 26 and a servant girl came to him and said, you too were with the Galilean, but he denied it before them saying, I do not know what you're talking about. Why? Well, he just saw Jesus get arrested and he didn't want to get arrested. So even though he really was with Jesus and really was a Galilean that was one of his disciples, it made sense to him to deny Jesus. And it showed that he hadn't denied himself didn't it? When he'd gone out of the gateway, he saw another servant girl and he said, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I don't even know this man. And a little way, a while later a bystander came to and said to Peter, surely you are one of them for even the way you talk gives you away. And then Jesus began, I mean, then Peter began to curse and swear. Why? Well, because then they would believe him and they, he wouldn't be at risk anymore. He was going to save his life through his own reason, because he hadn't denied himself. I don't know the man. And then the rooster crowed and Peter remembered the word that the Lord had said. Before the rooster crows, you would deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And what, what, to what extent are they called to deny themselves? Well, the call is deny yourself and take up your cross. The damage done to this concept by bad preaching deeply troubles me. Christian use of the language of self-denial or even cross-bearing has blunted the force of Jesus' actual words. You ever heard somebody say, well, everyone has their cross to bear? Uh, No. No, they don't. Everyone doesn't have their cross to bear. This text dismisses that idea. If anyone wishes to come after Christ, then he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow. That means if you care nothing about following Christ, then you can avoid the cross that he's talking about. You can't avoid it. If you don't want to follow Christ, you don't have to bear the cross. Whatever he's talking about is only necessary if you want to follow Christ. And that takes us to our second troubling misapplication. People take the cross and they apply it to any old hardship. The cross is undesirable difficulties in life. Well, it's just my cross to bear. My difficult marriage is my cross to bear. My, It's my, my, my cancer. It's my cross to bear. My dead-end job. Well, it's just my cross to bear. My diabetes. It's my cross to bear. My psoriasis. It's my cross to bear. My gout. It's my cross to bear. My dandruff. It's my cross to bear. My baldness. Male pattern baldness. It's my cross to bear. No, it's not. That's bad stuff that happens to people. It's not your cross to bear. It's not what he's talking about here. Lost and saved people alike all have bad stuff that happens. That's not your cross to bear. What is it? We deny our devotion to our own understanding of what's best for us and we will do what is right to the point of risking our own lives in the past of righteousness. That we will do what's right even if the world out there hates us, rejects us, even to the point of killing us, that we will do what's right anyway and bear the cross, the very instrument that they would kill us on. We willingly carry it and if you will kill me on it, kill me on it. That's your cross to bear. You want to be a disciple? Count the costs. That's your cross. Not little bad stuff that happens. Quit diminishing the cross by saying stuff like that. The cross is bigger than that. We put loyalty to Jesus before self-preservation. Turn back. We've seen this before to Matthew 10, 32-39. You're going to see confess and deny and then you're going to see the cross again. Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before the Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. I came to set... Man against his father, and daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, but whoever has lost his life for my sake will find it. There's your context. That... The whole world believes one set of ideas is right and I see that the Word of God disagrees with it and I say, no, what you think and what you've believed and what you've held to is wrong because God's Word says so and when you do that, if you want to make enemies, disagree with what people think is right. I don't care how much scripture you quote, they'll hate you for it. If you're in a post-Christian or a sub-Christian culture and you push against what everybody accepts to be commonly true, when you do it, they'll hate you for it. And you know what the Christian says? Hate me. I can't help it. I've denied myself what seems right to me. My heart is captive to the Word of God. And even if you kill me, I deny myself. I take up my cross and I follow my Lord. The crucifixion of... Some of Jesus' followers is predicted later in Matthew 23:22 through 26 where it says, fill up the measure of the guilt of your fathers. He says that they're going to keep rejecting Jesus and his disciples And it's going to finally culminate to where judgment's going to come on them. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. And some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So that upon you might fall the guilt of the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The New Testament doesn't record any crucifixion of Jesus' disciples, but history tells us that Peter, Andrew, and Philip all were crucified. Just like Jesus had been. And what's this last call? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Jesus doesn't demand what he doesn't model. The follow me with your cross in 1038 and here are the first indication that Jesus will himself be crucified. Jesus tells them here that he'll be killed by the chief priests, scribes, and elders, but he doesn't explicitly say that he's going to be crucified until Matthew 20 verses 18 and 19 where he uses the same words but he replaces kill with crucify in, verse tw- in chapter 20 verse 19. Jesus invited the disciples to follow him, cross in hand, denying their impulse to deny him to preserve their own lives. Discipleship is a life of at least potential martyrdom. You say that again. Discipleship is a life of at least potential martyrdom. So, well, not very many people are martyred. I didn't say it's a life of martyrdom. I said it's a life of potential martyrdom that I'm willing to obey to the point of being killed. If you're not, you're not a disciple of Christ. And if you'll disobey not only to save your life, but to save your job or to save your reputation or to look cool in front of your friends, you certainly aren't going to die for it. Right? Complacent, damsel in distress, pietism. Is one of the greatest hindrances to the kingdom advancement. you say, what do you mean by that? we don 't hunker down, hide, hope not to be noticed, and wait on Jesus to come back and save us and believe in our heart and keep everything we believe in our heart because we dare not say it out loud to anybody, but Jesus is going to save us when he comes back, and take us to heaven, waiting on the rapture. no no, no, you like Jesus, what he has whispered in your ear, you proclaim it from the housetops, you shout it from the mountains. You're unashamed of God, of Jesus, and of his words. And when that happens, just like they hated Jesus, a post-Christian age will also hate you. And you say, The whole world was against Athanasius. They said, The whole world is against you, Athanasius. And he said, Then I am against the world. That's the heart of the Christian. Why? Because Jesus is my Lord, and if the whole world hates me, let them hate me. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he becomes like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? We've got too many Christians that get along just fine in a pagan age where everything around us is absolute insanity and we fly under the radar. Why? Because we're, we dare not say anything that offends the masses. Why, why can't Christians make any impact? There's tens of millions of Christians. Because Christians aren't trying to make an impact. They're trying to sustain their cushy, comfortable lives. And they dare not do anything that bring the reproach of anybody upon them. They're, they're not only scared of being martyred, they're scared of being canceled, whatever that means. We should be the ones doing the canceling. Well, we just can't discriminate. No, we have to what the Ministry of the Keys is. We don't associate with that immorality or have anything to do with it. We come out from among them and be a separate people. Well, then I won't be able to get my promotion. Guys, to hell with your promotion. To hell with it. Literally. Say, well, Matt, don't curse. I'm not cursing. I'm saying where I think your promotion can go if it it requires you not to be uh, loyal to King Jesus. Because it's either to hell with your promotion or it's to hell with you. And I don't want that. It's serious. And when we are courageous by the power of the Holy Spirit and we stand with courage against this stuff, the gates of hell can't prevail against us. Well, they just seem to be winning. Yeah, they do because we ain't fighting. I thought you said we didn't need muskets. Who said anything about muskets? We fight with the sword of the Spirit. Don't need muskets. What we've got is more powerful than muskets or ARs. We stand unashamed. And the consequence whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whew. Jesus' words here are about. Literal death, following the condemned man on his way to execution. Jesus' words are not to be taken as merely metaphorical. The cross and the losing of life is literal. A clear choice is thus offered between self-preservation at all costs and the risky business of following King Jesus. But the self that is preserved by such a safe option is not worth preserving. You save your life, but what are you at that point? You saved your cowardly, pathetic little life for just a little while. What are you going to live? 70 years? 80 years? Maybe 90? Maybe you make it to 105. Wow. And then there's eternity after you. Really? I'd rather go down in a blaze of glory than that, wouldn't you? and preserve and get to live a little bit longer as a coward who made no impact on the world? Yeah, I think I'd rather just go out, wouldn't you? Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus called the disciples to follow him with their crosses in hand, trusting that God would suffer. I mean, that, uh, tr- trusting God should we suffer unjustly. We just trust God. If they, if we suffer unjustly, we trust God that he'll work it all out in the end. Well, how can he do that if they kill us? That whole resurrection thing that we actually believe in. Remember? We actually believe in that? How can you be afraid? What are they going to do? Kill you? Big deal. You get to go to heaven and wait for the resurrection of your body, and then you live forever. That's exactly what it says in First Peter 2. Jesus encourages Peter, because Peter obviously didn't get it at this point. And then in First Peter 2, 21 through 25, Peter calls us to do the same thing. He says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. "...who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross." Why? "...so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed." Healed from what? Your psoriasis and your dandruff and your diabetes and your cancer? No! From your apostasy from your cowardice by his wounds you're healed from all that why? because we saw Jesus obey to the point of death even death on a cross and God highly super exalted him and lifted him to the loftiest of heights that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and we saw that and we said what do I have to fear now because if he rose and I trust in him I will raise also he told me it was true and I believe him and we believe God, and it's accounted to us as righteousness. Well, I, I, it's not works, it's it's faith. Faith produces that kind of works, or it's dead faith. That's what it produces. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross. And follow me. For you were continually... Here's what that healing looked like. By his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned. There's the healing. You were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. Your devotion's there now. Why? Because of the cross. You believe. You saw what God did with his son, and you are united to him by faith, and you're no longer a coward. You're a spirit and dwelled warrior of King Jesus. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, the next consequence, and forfeits his soul? Here we see again Jesus encouraging the disciples with the same hope that he used to overcome Satan in the wilderness temptation. Turn, I've had you in Matthew 4 already, but think back with me again. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these things I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. I'll give you the whole world if you'll just worship me. And Jesus said, Go, Satan. For so it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Yeah, I can get you. You're offering me all the kings of the world. They're under your disposal. And I can get them without the cross. Yeah, but I lose who I am. I forfeit my own soul, the heart of my being. I, I, I give up everything that matters to get a few things on this earth. What's it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Jesus got that. And he knew... That man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If I obey him, I'll live forever. So I obey Eternal life is worth giving up anything this world has to offer. And believing that, well, if I lose out on that stuff, my life might be harder. Yep, it might. So? Harder. And they might kill you. Yeah, so They might not, too. It might just be harder and you might actually outproduce and outsucceed them all. And it might actually be that God blesses you and gives you multi-generational faithfulness and that you build things instead of plugging into other things that they're building. You actually build things and other people depend on you and are blessed by you because you came out from among them and you actually did something and God honored it and blessed you. It could be that. I don't know what the outcome will be, but I don't do things based off of what the outcome are. I do what God says and He takes care of the outcome. That's the difference. And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? People sometimes commend me for my fearless stances when I preach. I don't have any fearless stances, I ain't got none. I have courageous stances, perhaps, but courage is not the absence of fear, but the conquering of it. I get scared. I do. I fear men's opinions. I fear offending the world. I fear being a failure because the world withdraws its favor from me. I fear those things. I fear their rejection. I even fear your rejection when I come out all completely countercultural and actually say things that I think, well, some of you people are going to think this is fine, but the Bible says it's not and I'm going to have to hit it. And I'm like, I, I, sometimes I get done preaching, I go over there and I sit with my head between my legs and I think, who's going to come at me and have a problem with me this time? Then why do you do it? Because my fears of all that stuff is conquered by a greater fear. It's not that I don't have fear. It's I have that fear, but I have a greater fear. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Matthew 10, 26-28. What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. What I have whispered in your ear, proclaim from the housetops, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Yeah, I fear pain, rejection. Temporal suffering. But my fear of God who can destroy both body and soul is so great that I will go ahead and tell you in darkness, what is told to me in darkness of my study, I will speak it in the light. What God shows me in his word, whispered in my ear, I'll proclaim it from the housetops because I fear him too much not to. And he calls you to have that same kind of fear of him. It's not just for pastors and ministers. It's the kind of courage that will change the world around us instead of us just, well, everything's just getting worse and worse. Shut up. Stand up. And believe God that, you, that the gates of hell won't prevail against you by the power of His Spirit working in you. I might get trampled. Yeah, you might, but you might not. Either way, the outcome doesn't matter, but faithfulness does. So we go forth hoping to win, but being willing to lose temporarily because we know in the end we win either way because there's a resurrection from the dead. We not only have these promises of reward, but we have a prophesied coming. That's verses 27 through 28. And I'm not going to do that one. I'm going to save it for next week. I feel like we've done enough today. We can leave the script, can't we? Brothers and sisters, we're called to obey King Jesus no matter what. How many of us have obeyed Him perfectly? We haven't. How many of us have been cowards too many times? Refused to speak up because of pragmatic reasons? How many of us are a lot like Peter? And we we think, oh, I've got to avoid the path of suffering, so we compromise. We've rejected the teachings of Christ so many times... And if we deny Him before men, He's will deny us before the Father. What do we do? We run to the one that never denied Him for forgiveness and pardon. Jesus didn't and He died on the cross to pay for our compromises. That we come in repentance week after week, day after day. That we die daily. <laughs> that we put, us, put off more and more of our sin and, and, and say, God, I want to obey but I'm not good enough but you obeyed good enough and I trust your broken body and I trust your shed blood. That's what we come back to and we come back to it this morning. You get a charge like this, you're like, hey, I'm I'm not exactly like that. You're not saved by your works, you're saved by His. Repent again, recommit to it, and trust in the enoughness of Christ. I'm justified through faith, but I'm being sanctified. The things I'm telling you, you are a little, but you're not fully, neither am I. And we're being conformed to His image, and we want more of it. And we say, God, change me. I take this in hope of forgiveness and of sanctification, that I partake, I'm eating, I'm consuming the broken body and shed blood of Christ and becoming like Him. You are what you eat, yep, and I'm feasting on Christ and I'm becoming more like Him, conformed to His image. Come in faith. Come in faith. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Hold to that great hope.